We are diving right in. We have much to do and less time to do it in. So that is not a misprint. I warned you when we started that at some point we were going to start taking big chunks of this book. This is one of the first of the first of one of those Sundays. Now, I know we're having lunch. We're not going to take any longer than we normally take to go through this. We are going to go through this in big sections. This is today in the next few weeks. Do you know who's going to have the hardest time with this? No, not me. No, it's going to be Araceli. Yeah, the hand just went up. She's like, wait a minute. I just realized what's going to happen. We are going to go through large chunks, and she's going to have to be keeping up and direct. So <laughs> it's good that Matt's also back there on sound because it's going, to, it's going to take three of us between her keeping up and me telling her where we are and someone else trying to communicate. We're going to get there. But if we try... There you go. If we, tried to, if we tried to break this down into smaller units, one, we would be taking the speeches and segmenting them, and that would be aggravating. The other thing we would be doing is removing the response from the speech. That's why we're taking all four of these chapters together. We are getting Eliphaz's speech to Job and Job's response, and we're going to look at them together. Does that make sense? So... Setting our stage, when last we left, let's see, Job is miserable, angry, and hurt. Good summary? Yeah, pretty much. He's, he's just a miserable human being right now, and can you blame him? I was going to say, you can't really fault him for this. Now, what does Job need? And a big hint should have been the passage we read before the prayer earlier this morning. Job needs comfort, godly comfort, and wisdom and advice. Where should he be able to find those things? You would think wise, godly friends, right? Who's sitting around staring at him for the last week? In theory, those guys. So, that's going to be what happens next. Now, you ever heard the phrase, with friends like these, who needs enemies? I, I think whoever came up with that had read Job. I am thoroughly convinced of that. So, warning... We are not going to try to read every single verse of all of these chapters. Otherwise, half of this morning would just be reading Job. And while that may not be the worst exercise in the world, it would probably segment us too much to not make sense. So I'm going to encourage you. I haven't given you homework in weeks. So now I'm giving you homework. I'm going to encourage you to grab your little checklist chart, see how long it'll take you to read through Job, and realize that you can get through a couple of chapters in between and pick up everything that we kind of skip over. Does that make sense? Because it does fill in with the overall theme. So with that said, let us dive right into chapter 4, and that starts with verse 1. Eliphaz's initial response to Job. So Eliphaz the Temanite answered, this breaks down into two sections, and this is worth reading, the first six verses of this chapter. If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient? It touches you, and you are dismayed? Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? All right. There's some good here. There is some good. He's pointing Job to previous good righteousness. 
This is something that I encourage you all the time. We talk about this with sanctification. You started here. Your goal is here. Are you going to get there straight shot in a day? No. Over time, you're going to do what? You get ebbs and flows, ups and downs. Sometimes the stock market's going to crash. Sometimes it's going to rally. But over time, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you should be farther along in righteousness than you were when you began. That's why I tell you, when we get a little victory, what do we do? We, we celebrate that. We, we, got, we made progress. This is a good day. Even when it's like this, we are still doing what? We're still moving forward. We celebrate that. So th- that is a good reminder. Go back to what Job, you know, Job has done before. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This speech, this beginning to the speech to Eliphaz also rightly points to what wisdom should look like in their world. Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Is not your fear of God your confidence? Because you know you fear God. Should you be dismayed and think that this is judgment upon you? And the answer to that should be no. But did you notice the slight off the rails we just had right here? And the integrity of your ways, your hope. I got nothing to worry about. I'm doing well. I shouldn't be concerned. I can have hope in this world because I am good. (laughs) We were doing so good. We didn't even make it six verses. We didn't even make it six verses. Christian, where's your hope? Where's your trust? Where are the promises coming from? See, this matters. This is again why I say you have to constantly challenge your mind and check your motivations. It is not the actions that are leading you astray. It is the desires of the heart where sin is conceived and the longings are birthed that leads you astray. This is why I warn you about you lying to you because you are tempted because you desire. And then you convince yourself that it's just, you know, it's just one little thing. It's just, you know, one little thing. And it's just a little, and again, just like we celebrate righteousness in baby steps, very few people stand well and then run. And there, now, look, now, now I am wallowing in my sin. Just like we mentioned last week, what does it often look like? A little step here, and a little step there, and another little step. And then sure enough, where are you? I don't know. How did we get here? I don't know. How do I get back? I don't know. Because you weren't paying attention to the simple, small things in life. This is one of them, where your hope is. Acts 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified. I always love that. Every time you read one of Peter's speeches in Acts, like, it's the stab, and then there's the twist. He never, this Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, <laughs> whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Talking about Christ again. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in 
no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Your integrity is not your hope. Your good works are not your hope. Your trust and your faith are not your hope. God is your hope. The work of Christ and the promises that he has made, that is where your hope should be found. So, <clears throat> Eliphaz is going to continue. I'm going to work on from verse 7. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, where were the upright destroyed? Now, this could be good. This could be bad, depending on what? Depending on the perspective that you assign to this statement. So let's, I warn you about this all the time. Well, I better not say all the time. A lot more lately. Give professed believers the benefit of the doubt. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Assume the best until they prove the worst. Because if you do not, do you know whose heart and soul gets destroyed day by day in this world? Yours! Because you become bitter and angry at the world. So, let's practice what I preach. <laughs> Every once in a while I should listen to me, right? <laughs> and let's give Eliphaz here the benefit of the doubt. We're trusting in the righteousness and the justice of God. Is that a good place to be? Yes, yes it is. Go back to Exodus again. When God got a chance to proclaim himself before Moses, what did he say? The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, this gracious, loving, compassionate God is also a God of justice and righteousness, and we can place our trust in him. According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. All right, we're going to pause right here. Eliphaz goes all the way through 11 on this. You can read that at home. Eliphaz no longer gets the benefit of the doubt. Why not? He's no longer talking about eternity, is he? From what I have seen, he's talking about the justice of God in the here and the now. Do well, and God will reward you. Do evil, and the judgment and justice of God will be poured out upon you. Christian, you have never in your life seen that not happen, have you? I mean, people sin against God, they break his commandments, and the lightning comes down, and that's why our world is so amazing. <laughs> You've wished for that every once in a while, haven't you? Don't lie. I can see your faces. No. <laughs> it doesn't work like that, does it? This is wisdom in observation. You go to things like Ecclesiastes. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. If you pay attention long enough, it seems to look like an awful lot that justice isn't always done in the here and now, is it? This is again why, Christian, your hope is not here and now. Your hope is in eternity. We've talked about this before, I know. This is one of the most damaging things that is going on in the last probably 10 years in our culture because it's accelerating. I was blessed to grow up in a time before the internet and social media. And so I remember the concepts being taught to me about systems and structures. Excuse me. 
And as a person who has a bachelor's degree in social studies education, not that it does me any good most of the time, so history, government, stuff like that, it was drilled into my head that the founding system that we had was built on the premise that we would rather let 10 guilty men go free than have one innocent man be punished. That's why our legal system is as, I don't know if robust is the right word, or as stringent as it's supposed to be. What's the standard for a not guilty verdict? A reasonable doubt. Not proof that they didn't do it, but a reasonable doubt. It's reasonable to assume that he is not guilty. Therefore, we should find him not guilty. But I don't like that because I want my justice now. Christian, you're not going to get it. You're not. And part of playing the long game, part of having your heart and your mind set upon eternity is realizing that even if there is not justice in the physical, in the here and now, there will be justice because God is just. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Our hearts are set on eternity, on a kingdom that is coming to pass. Our longing is for the righteousness and the judgment that will come then. This is why I encourage you to give people the benefit of the doubt. Because I I literally just got a chance to preach this yesterday at a funeral. Paul's declaration about himself is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. But it is for this reason that I found mercy. As an example that I have not gone too far. That was Paul's entire point. I hated the church. I was putting people in prison. I killed them and God saved even me, which means he can save even you, which means he can save even them, whoever they may happen to to be. Our hope is that in the meantime that the gospel will take root and that gracious, loving, merciful, compassionate God will change their hearts and minds and they will be redeemed. Because we know if they are not, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That changes your attitude in the world. It should also change the way you comfort people in their misery and in their distress. I'm not pointing you to your righteousness. You know why? Because you don't possess any. Not that belongs to you. Big fancy theological term, which isn't big or fancy, but it is theological. We have what we call an alien righteousness. It is imputed to us by Christ. It is not just like sprinkled on and then you hope to keep it the rest of the time. It is yours, credited to your account. You stand before God righteous. Why? Because of Christ because of the work that he has accomplished, because of the life that he has led, and because of the death that he has died. Not your accomplishment, his accomplishment. That's why I don't point you to your integrity. That's why I don't point you to justice here and now. Because if you got justice here and now, what should you have received? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I like that. Always remember our fancy uh, theological term is, yeah. I mean, in other words, you would have been, you know what I'm going to say next, don't you? Smited. Ding! <laughs> I'm going to, I was going to get it in there. You knew I was going to get it in there. This is the hope, though, is that the long view, the accomplishment of Christ. Hebrews chapter 11. 
the rundown of the generations, the people that have lived faithfully, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We're looking for what is to come, not what is. We are longing for the justice that is to come, not always the justice that is. So, Eliphaz continues. He begins a uh, description of a vision in verse 12, but we are going to skip to verse 17. So I'm trying to help you out, Sally. We are skipping to 17. Why? Because he asks a very, very important question there. Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? When left to his own devices, the answer to that question is no. But... Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Now here's the thing. How many people do you know running around trying to keep their way pure and trying to follow God's word? <laughs> that, that's the best answer right there. Because you look and say... <laughs> Why not? Broken hearts, corrupted by sin, lives destroyed and torn apart because of the way that we are all infected in this world. What fixes that? The work of Christ, the work that God has done, promised in the time of Job, delivered in the time of the New Testament, being fulfilled in the world you live in now. This is where your hope is. This is where your anchor must rest. Not in you, but in Christ. Not in your good works, but in his accomplished salvation. John 10. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And by the way, Job right now is having an abundant life. (laughs) If you define abundant life by Job in chapter 1 and Job in chapter 42, when he's got all that this world has to offer, you have defined abundance wrongly. You have defined a hope that is found in this world and not in the world that is to come. Let's be honest. At this moment, with Job's lament from chapter 3 in our rearview mirror, and Job's continuing lament in chapter 6 and 7 before us, does Job deserve anything good? Does Job deserve peace and righteousness and hope? No. Does he deserve a good smiting? (laughs) Yeah, we need a good smiting, right? Why won't he receive that? Because he's living an abundant life. What's carrying him across? What will ensure that in spite of himself, in spite of his sin, and in spite of his calls for justice and his warring against God, what will ensure that Job faithfully makes it to the end? God. God in his work. Christian, that's where the abundance of life is found. 
We've talked about this before. If I give you a car, let's say you have a really nice car. Get you where you need to go. It's great on gas. It never breaks down. And I give you an old beat-up 82 Honda. Do you care about that car? Do you love that car? You're like, no. No, not, if, not when I have a good car. This thing's a piece of junk. It breaks down when I get halfway down the highway. It burns gas. It leaks oil. I step in the gas, and that plume of smoke comes out the back. The water pump's about to die. No, this thing's terrible. It's going to sit in my garage until you give it to somebody else. Now, what if you don't have a car? And now you can't get to work. Now I give you the same 82 Honda with all those same problems. How much do you love this car? This thing's amazing. I'm going to drive it until the wheels fall off because it gets me where I need to go. And yeah, it's got some problems, but you know what? It beats walking and I can make this work. What's the, has the car changed? No. The only thing that changed is the perspective of the people who are driving it. Christian, this is what abundance in this world looks like. It's not a change in this world. It's a change in your perspective. A change in your life grounded and built upon God, who he is and what he has done, and then what he has promised in light of that. It is a change in you. And that changes how you see. We've talked about this a thousand times. Change your heart. Change your desires. Things that you want will change the way you think about this world, which will change the way that you then act in this world. You want to see what depraved action looks like? Turn on the news this week. It's been a mess, hasn't it? Why? It's not because the actions are depraved, although they are. It's because the heart behind them is depraved. How do you fix those actions? We need better laws, more police. Well, while those things might be good and helpful, what we need is changed hearts in the people. <clears throat> Verse 22. I lost my spot. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Sally, I messed you up. That's that. You are, you are not going to find verse 22 in chapter 4. If you do, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. I looked at the bottom of the wrong page. Chapter 5, Eliphaz moves his argument to an application. So if you go to verse 1, call now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For anger slays the foolish man, and jealousy kills the simple. I have seen the foolish taking root. And I cursed his abode immediately. His sons are far from safety. They're oppressed in the gate. There is no deliverer. His harvest, the hungry devour and take it to a place of thorns. And the schemer is eager for their wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. So stop. Live a life of iniquity. What should you expect? Should you expect anything good? No. No, you shouldn't. We would agree with that if we're thinking in terms of eternity. This is, again, the change in perspective. Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Again, what's Eliphaz's problem? This is true if you're thinking in what terms of what? Eternity, the kingdom of God. This is terrible advice if you're thinking in terms of right now. Because live a life of sin and iniquity. And nothing but bad things will happen to you in the world, right? Mm -mm. Because our justice is not here and it is not now. So, Chapter 5 continues, Eliphaz is going to make some appeals directly to God. He proclaims that God hears and works wonders, that he's a giver of gifts, that he's the avenger, and that he is the deliverer of his people. Do you have any argument with any of those things? 
No, because when I read my Bible, I see the same stuff. Now, time out. Does any of that have anything to do with what's going on with Job? What do we know of Job from chapter 1? There was, a man, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. This is the foundational problem that we will run into throughout this book. Just as we said last week, Job's problem last week when we looked at chapter 3 was what? He was defining everything in his world, everything that has come before and everything that will come after based on what? How he felt right then and there. How he feels in that moment is coloring what he sees going forward and coloring what he has experienced going backward. Is that the case, Christian? No, that cannot be the way that we live. Eliphaz is going to do the same thing. He's going to take the attributes of God, the understanding of how God operates and what he's doing, and smush it all into right now. You have been judged of God. You must have done something terrible. What do we know about Job? Now again, Christian, has God done something terrible to Job? Yes. Yes. I mean, would you like to sign up for all of your worldly possessions and home to be burned to ash and your entire family to be killed? Like, is there going to be a line at that booth? No, no, nobody's like, you know what, sign me up. I am too connected to the things of this world. I need them all taken from me so that I can, I can like turn into the kung fu or something and just wander the earth seeking out righteousness. <laughs> Suddenly, was that David Carradine? It was one of the Carradines, right? I mean, nobody signs up for that treatment. Now, that's what God has God given him. Now, if Job is engaged in idolatry in regards to his stuff. And if Job is engaged in idolatry in regards to his family, and he loves and is more concerned for them than he is for God, has God done a bad thing to him? No. No, he hasn't. We don't think like that. Because we don't like the implications that a loving God will look at me and say, that is not what's best for you, and I don't care how much you like it. That is not what is good for you, and I don't care how much you love it. It needs to be taken. Because we don't root out sin in our lives the same way. We think about it as something that we can deal with, something that we can overcome. This is what I tell you. Celebrate how many of the victories. Because you know what? We're getting rid of something. It may not be as quick as we'd like. It may not be all that we like, but we're getting rid of something. And as we war and as we fight, we can continue to see the progress and continue to rejoice in who God is and what he has done. Keeping our perspective where? on the promises that are yet to be fulfilled, on the righteousness that Christ has supplied, and know that he will bring his good work to a good end. So, that's where the advice falls flat. So, verse 17. When they become waterless, I'm sorry, that's chapter 6. I'm reading, I'm confusing myself now. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Now, is that good advice? Yes. Yes, it is. Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and you are not sons. So, has Hebrews 12 said anything different than what Eliphaz has said? No. Fun question. This is why I tell you to read your Bible and sort of have a general idea about the outlines of your Bible. What does Hebrews start out with? 
Does anybody know chapter 1 of Hebrews? It's a declaration of the deity of Christ and how he is elevated above the angels and why that is important. Because the rest of that book, moving all the way up into chapter 11, is a rundown of the work of Christ as sacrifice, as priest, and as deliverer who will give his people rest in God. In other words, it's a summation for 11 chapters or 10 chapters of the gospel. How Christ will offer an eternal sacrifice, how he is a continuing priest forever, how God does not give Israel in the land rest, but he gives his people rest in Christ. Then it gets to chapter 11 to remind you that faith is the avenue through which you access all of that work. And he gives the rundown of all those Old Testament people. And I've told you this before, I'm going to tell you this again. Go read the list of names in Hebrews 11 and then go examine those people's lives and tell me how they are paragons of faith. Most of those people you want to reach into your Bible and smack because they're miserable and can't get anything right. And I'm serious about that. And then you get to chapter 12, encouraging you to focus your eyes upon Christ and to rejoice in the discipline of God. In other words, if I'm going to point you to the joy that you should have in the discipline of God, I must ground you in what first? The reality that you are his because of the work of Christ and all of the benefits and all of the glories that that will bring to God's people. In other words, the good news precedes the bad news in this case because you are suffering and you are struggling. Remember to keep your eyes lifted high and rejoice in the discipline because the discipline follows because of the good work that he has done to claim you as his own. Now, I tell you that because this is the most important question we're going to ask. Has Eliphaz done any of that? <laughs> no, Eliphaz started out with basically, what'd you do? What'd you do? And I can't do that without bringing out a Puerto Rican accent because I had a kid in my daycare years ago. Last name was Pagan. And she flat out looked at me the first day I was there. She goes, it's spelled, it's spelled P-A-G-A-N. It's pronounced Pagan. She pointed at her five-year-old and goes, he may act like a little pagan, but it is Pagan. <laughs> She's like, I didn't say that. And he was in timeout one day when she showed up to pick him up. And she, she, interesting character, I cannot remember for the life of me her first name. But she had six children, 19, 18, 17, 12, 5, and 1. <laughs> and she was just over all of it. And she walked in and he was sitting in that little chair in timeout. She opened the door, he looked at her, she looked at him, and he just started screaming. And her first, Chuki, what you do? What you do, Chuki? And he's just screaming, so she looked at me. What'd he do? He finally composed himself. Are you going to beat me with a slipper? <laughs> Greatest answer ever. Maybe. <laughs> I was like, I didn't see a thing. <laughs> so anytime I ask someone, what did they do? I have to do it. And, and they say, what you do? What'd you do? I, I can't help myself. So, sorry. <laughs> That's what Eliphaz started out with, though. You're being judged. You've obviously done something because the righteous people don't experience this. This is what the wicked receive. So something must be terribly wrong. Again, your New Testament is full of places that are reminding you to rejoice in God even in the midst of suffering. But they are all predicated on the understanding that you are facing that discipline because God loves you. You are not facing that discipline because he is angry with you. Always remember, the wrath of God is not your dad driving the car on vacation. Anybody else have this parent? Where it's like, you know, the car is barely in its own lane and you're trying to duck and dive and put a sibling in the way. Count yourself blessed. I was an only child. There was no one else to aim at. Okay? No one else. It was just me. That's not what the wrath of God looks like. It is controlled. 
it is measured, and it is always right. So, we'll continue. Because Job gets to speak. So, chapter 6. Job answered, Oh, that my grief were actually weighed, and laid in the balances together with my calamity. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the seas. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me, and their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Sorry, we're at 6-4, Sally. <laughs> I should have warned you. There you go. Good summary from verses 1 through 7. Job's complaint is that he is being judged by God. Now question, is he? No. How do we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt? Because we had chapter 1. Blameless and upright, above, you know, fearing God, turning away from evil. How does Job know? And I challenge you with that every time because he should. He should. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. I made mention of this before. People used to ask me all the time, you know, how do I know I haven't committed the unpardonable sin? How do I know I haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit and my heart is reprobate and God's going to send me to hell no matter what I do? Because you're worried about it. My goodness, man, you're worried. You're concerned with your sin. Is the pagan concerned with his sin? No, don't believe me. Go turn on a protest from the weekend. Will someone for the life of me please explain the mindset and rationale behind, I've seen at least three different commentaries on this exact protest. Abortion is illegal. I'm going to take all my clothes off. What, what, how, uh, what, I can't even process a question to that. What's the rationale to that? We're going to stand in front of a courtroom and I'm going to strip until you give me back what I want. You're probably not that ugly. I mean, I don't think anybody is actually that ugly. No, no, put your clothes on. Give them everything they want. I mean, we make jokes about that, but that's not how the world actually works. How do you get, see, we're struggling to get from A to B because it doesn't make any sense. It's not rational. It's not logical. It doesn't follow. They don't care. They don't care. Why not? Depraved heart leading to a depraved mind leading to depraved actions. They don't care. What cures that? Well, we'll change this law. We'll give them a new outlet for this. We'll explain to them how it's a state's rights issue now, and they can argue before the legislature. They don't care! They need a new heart. They need the proclamation of Christ and him crucified to change the heart. This is the brokenness that we are encountering day by day. Christian, this is not you. Rejoice! Rejoice that you look at the insanity of the world and go, oh my goodness, this is why I actually say the the veneer of Christianity being stripped away from this country is actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. Because for a long, long time in Western civilization, you have been able to live in a culture that appeared Christian when it was not. So you could kind of go along with the world and not do any hard evaluating work. That's deadly. Because again, it's that drift. 
it's just subtle and you don't even realize that you're, you're basically just bobbing along. Who knows? Maybe something will grab you. Maybe something won't. Maybe you'll drift away. Maybe you won't. But when the lines get solidified and they get sharpened and you can see the distinction, the sheep and the goats begin to do what? And they start moving in opposite directions. This is good news for you. You can see what's going on and go, this is insane. I want no part of this. And you can rejoice because why do you think like this? Why does your heart stir in the way that it is stirred? This is part of that progress. And this is good. It is good for you. And believe it or not, it is good for the world. Because it can't lie about itself anymore either. I've told you this for years, that the world was not going to let you assimilate your way to eternity. You are going to have to take a stand and choose. Because as we have devolved more and more into our own pride, as our world has become more and more like the definitions of Romans 1, the demand from the culture is, will you agree with us? Well, maybe, I mean, they're not going to let you get away with that. No, it's going to be a yes or no. You are with us or against us. Christ has always had that standard. Always. It's been the lie of the culture to tell us anything less. So the world is simply adopting the same rules. I welcome that. Because the lines are clear, I now know who's on what side, and it makes my job a whole lot easier. It makes your job easier, too, because it enables you to see clearly what the iniquity of this place is and how we should reject it and walk away from it. So, Job continues. He gets to verses 8 and 9, and he prays for death, which, get used to that. Job's going to pray for death in this book, like, a lot, because he's forever seeing what? You, I mean, if you want to understand one of the primary breakdowns in the suicidal mind, read Job. It's, I'm, 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 I'm being serious about that. It's an understanding. This is not all-encompassing, but for a lot of people, it is understanding everything as right now. It's always been bad. It will never get better. There is no hope, so I might as well, and you can fill in the blanks. You're seeing that in real time with Job. That's one of the hard things you have to do with someone in that mindset is get them out of that place. Again, my argument is that what changes the mind? Change of the heart. No. Verse 10. This is just going to throw everything on its head. So chapter 6, verse 10. But it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Are you sure? <laughs> Are you positive? Now, the reason why I say this time it turns everything on its head is this is the work of God in real time. <clears throat> I've told you, what's going to keep Job from completely falling apart? It's not going to be Job. It's not going to be his integrity. It's not going to be his strength. It's going to be God. What will that look like? It's going to look like things like that. I mean, this is, you're, we're going to see this throughout the book. Is Job's going to be like, I hate my life and I wish that I would die, but I know that my Redeemer lives. I mean, here it is right here. God is judging me. God is against me. I wish I could just die and be hidden away from God's face, but I have not denied my Holy One. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense because you are literally seeing what does it look like when a spirit justified by God goes to war with flesh that still has its sinful desires. Which is again why I tell you, what does it look like over time? Little, small victories. Celebrate every single one of them. They are all important. 
So Job continues. He's going to question the point of things, uh, verses 11 through 13, which again, I understand questioning the point of things if you completely lose any process of perspective. But how do you question the point of all existence when you recognize that there is a holy one who has redeemed you and who is the author of this place? No temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man? To lower your eyes, to focus on this place, to forget the taking up of your cross, to see everything in life in the here and the now. Now, Job does do one thing I like. Verse 14, he moves to Eliphaz. For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. Job's going to start twisting the knife a little bit. Because let's be honest, has Eliphaz done a good job? No, Eliphaz has done a terrible job. By the way, Christian, this is why Paul tells you things like Ephesians 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that you will give grace to those who hear. Look, I'm snow shovel guy. When in doubt, what should you present people? Snow shovel, face. Right? This, is, this is how you communicate. Blunt, right to the point, don't pull any punches, don't cut any corners, just unvarnished truth right away. I'm also the guy who tells you that they did a good job when they sat there and didn't say anything for a week. Wisdom would tell you sometimes sit down and shut up. And sometimes you don't have anything good to say and sometimes you don't have anything brilliant to say and what should you do? Because I got nothing. And when I'm digging the hole, you know what the best thing for me to do is? Put down the shovel. And when I keep speaking and I keep making things worse, you know what the best thing for me to do is? Stop talking. So Job continues on. He asks for wisdom. Verse 24, teach me and I will be silent. Show me how I have erred. This is good. He's asking for his friends. Look, you accuse me of sin, which is why I'm being judged. So what should you do? What does that require from you now? You say, I have sinned, and this is the judgment of God. If I was righteous, this wouldn't have happened to me. What do you have to do next? Tell me what the sin is. Help me root it out so we can get rid of it. This is, again, consistent. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. This is Psalm 139. James 5, when we went through James, we talked about this. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the work we're supposed to be doing. This is what life is supposed to look like under Christ. This is why a Christian community is important. This is why I tell you godly counsel should be the thing for Job. And also why I warn you, if all your friends in life are unbelievers, you are in a dangerous place. Because where will you find such godly counsel in times of trouble? When all your friends believe something else. We now have to start running to people who I know are godly, but who don't know me. Who don't know my struggles, who don't know the path that I've been on. This is again why I've said this is, this is supposed to be the most open place on the planet. Where we can be honest about who we are and how broken we are and what are we going to do about it. Because what are we all admitting by simply coming in and worshiping Christ? We're proclaiming that we're broken and that we are not good. You started off with that. 
So that's, now that we've covered that, we know there's nothing else to lie and hide about, then let's just figure out how we overcome and how we work together to ensure that we stay on the path together. Job is asking for this. This is actually good. But since it's not actually happening, chapter 7 occurs. Is not man forced to labor on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade and as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages, so am I allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed me. (sighs) We were doing so well. We were doing good. And now we're back to doing what again? Complaining. Now again, do I blame Job for his lament? No. Does there reach a point where he should even himself be able to know better? Yes. But when you lose perspective and your focus of your life becomes about you, do you know any better? No. And godly people need to raise your eyes, not lower them. That's why walking in and going, what'd you do? What'd you do, Chucky? What'd you do? Doesn't help because now who are you focused on again? I don't care what I did. You know what I care about? What he has done and what he is building. And how do I get back in line with all of those things? So, just in case you're tempted to give Job a little bit more benefit of the doubt. Verse 11. I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Is that a good mindset for anybody? I hurt and you're going to hear it. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that my soul would choose suffocation, death, rather than my pains. So whose fault is this if you're Job? This is God's fault. I was doing good. I was righteous. I was upright. I was blameless. And he has done this to me. You've never been tempted to say such a thing to God, have you? Never once. Why have you done this to me? Because you focused on who? Broken, depraved heart. This is the breakdown. This is the problem. Forgetting what? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Remember, we've already defined abundance in God. Better define prosperity that way too. Does that tree planted by that nice stream producing its fruit, are there no bugs? Are there no storms? No, because that's life, and that's the world we live in. But what is prosperity? Producing its fruit in its season. Christian, what's your fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's your fruit. Godliness, righteousness, found in what? The work of Christ as you live in this world. That's where your prosperity is found. That's where your abundance in life is located. That's the longing that we have to get to. So Job returns all the way back to the bad of chapter 4. He does it in verse 20 of chapter 7, though. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? 
Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression? Take away my iniquity. For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me, but I will not be. This is the longing of humanity in their brokenness. Go to Psalm 24. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully? He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. How you doing on that? The answer is terribly. Unless the Holy Spirit is preserving you unless Christ has redeemed you, and unless God is going to carry you through to that final day. You can't look to yourself. You can't, because you will fail and you will be broken. You can't look to them to change themselves, because they can't and they are broken. But you can trust that no matter the struggles, no matter the difficulties, no matter the tragedies of this world, there is a God in heaven who has not fallen from his throne, who has not forgotten his people, who has not forsaken the work that he is doing, and who will bring his people whom he has cleansed to a good end. He will create in them the good work. He will accomplish all he has promised. Why? Well, Because look, promise after promise after promise after promise after promise. Promise. This is why your Old Testament is as long as it is. You can see the work of God amongst his people. You can see the accomplishment. You can see the perseverance. Because let's be honest again, how many times when we went through Exodus did you want to smack an Israelite? Like, how many, did you get through three pages before you're like, oh my goodness, would you people just get one right? Just like by accident, would you stop whining and complaining and just do what God told you? Just, just like one time, please, pretty please for me. And it just didn't seem to ever happen. And yet they were his people. And yet he persevered with them. And yet he brought them to the mountain. And yet he will bring them to the land. And yet he will appoint a good king. And yet he will send the prophet. And yet he will accomplish all of these things, not because they are good, but because he is good. This is where our trust is placed. This is where our longing must be found because this world will give us nothing. And as the lines are drawn forever more sharply, the world will give us less and less. And that's good. Because we should expect nothing when we have everything as we find it in God. Let's pray.